Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us, that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. But uh, Revelation 20, this is so exciting to me. You know, we're, we're almost through the book, you know, and I think online, Rex, what is this, 130th uh, <laughs> message or something? It's not that quite that much. I think it's only about 30, only about, but there's 22 chapters, so that's not, not too bad. And uh, we're going to finish this chapter up. And this is hard, hard words here, okay? This is a hard section uh, in the book of Revelation. This is a, a number of hard sections. And this is one of those as the final judgment is brought to a conclusion and a statement. So if we begin at verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, the evil one will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog made reference to, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the city and the beloved city. Of course, that's Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven, consumed them. And the evil one who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire where the, the beast, the false messiah, and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now remember, this is what John is seeing. Remember, this is his vision. This is what he sees. The significance of what he sees is something we have to reflect upon. But this is what he is observing in his vision. And then I saw, and you notice, you know, how many times have we seen this? Look in chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open. Look at verse 17, chapter 19. Then I saw an angel standing. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down. Look at chapter 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones. Then we come to chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. These are the things that John is seeing in his vision. And him who was seated on it. Now, that's an interesting phrase, too, because we're not exactly sure who he saw seated on it. I know that most oftentimes we think of God the Father. If we're thinking of the three persons of the triunity... We might think that this is God the Father, and there's good reason to think that. But it's also possible that Messiah himself is the one seated on the throne. And there's reason for that. But if you look, it goes on to say, from his presence, that is the one seated on the throne, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them, that is, for the earth and the sky. So it's after the thousand-year reign of Messiah that history as we know it comes to a close. At least history as we know it on this world, on this planet, on this heaven and earth. Because he said it just fled away. 
But then what comes in its place is found in chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Because the first heaven, that's the heaven we are observing, and the first earth, the one that we live on, had passed away. And then it says in chapter 21, verse 1, and the sea was no more. I'll never forget, you know, and I've, I think I've mentioned here, when I was in Annapolis and learned how to sail, my, the fellow that taught, us, taught me how to sail was a fellow by the name of Bill Cox. Really wonderful person, wonderful man of God, a great servant. He was a retired captain in the Navy, worked in the Surgeon General's office. Some of, the, some of those about my age will know uh, with C. Everett Koop when he worked, I think, under the Reagan and Bush administrations. In any case, uh, Bill was an avid sailor, among many other things. And I remember we were out on the water sailing, and we were talking about the Scripture, which was often, and he made the point, he said, you know, this Bible says that there's coming a time when there's going to be a new heavens and new earth, and there's no more sea. And I said, you're kidding me. Does it really say that? I said, you know, I didn't remember that phrase, there is no more sea. And I said, if there's no more sea, there's no more sailing. We better get in as much as we can. <laughs> and, he, and Bill said to me, it doesn't matter. We'll be sailing the universe. Forget the seas. We'll sail the universe. Well, he's going on to be with the Lord, and I guess he knows whether we can or not. But in any case, you know, we'll join him and uh, sail the universe. So what the new heavens and new earth might be, who knows? I mean, God is a creative God, isn't he? There are things in our own creation we have no idea are or is. In any case, you know, you go down, down into the depths of the ocean, there's fish and stuff down there that we've never even discovered yet. And you always, I always thought, why are they there if... No one really can see them, you know, or deal with them. But then there's things way out in the universe that we have no idea exist. Planets and stuff that have never been discovered are too far to be discovered from us at the present time. What are they up there for if there's no one to observe them or to appreciate them? Although, of course, the angels see them. They appreciate them, and it brings glory to God. So the new heavens and new earth, who knows what that is going to entail? In either case, back to chapter 20, in verse 12 it says, And I saw, that is, this is what John is seeing again, And I saw the dead, great, small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now that struck me as well. I, you know, it's funny as you reread the scriptures, things that uh, seemed somewhat insignificant, and maybe they are insignificant, sort of jump out at you, and you take notice of them, not noticed before. Always thought about, not, I mean, whenever I had thought about this moment when the Lord would be on his throne and the final judgment is cast, I always realized that the book of life was opened before him. But you look here, it says, then another book was opened. And then he says, books were opened. It's like there's a whole library. You know, there are books. There's another book. And then there's the book of life. And uh, so those of you who don't like to read, God likes to read. You know, so if you want to be like God, you have to like to read. <laughs> you know, possibly. And then, in any, but the thing that struck me was just that books, I mean, there's like books, plural, and another book. Now, why is that one separated from all the other books? And then the book of life is there. Things are just more mysterious the more you plummet it and get into it, you know. 
They don't have to be weird things, just something like that. And then in verse 13, it says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Now, why does he mention that? You know, maybe because in the ancient world, and even in our world, maybe, maybe there's this sense people lost at sea. How, do we, how are their bodies raised? You know, it's sort of like, I guess today we say, how are people who are cremated? You know, how are their bodies raised? Well, this seems to say to me that it doesn't really matter how you pass this life, whether in the seas, whether through cremation, whatever your thoughts are about it, the Lord will resurrect us, you know. He'll resurrect us. And then he goes on to say, the sea gave up its dead. Death and Hades gave up the dead. You know, in the book of Revelation, death and Hades is always paired. You never read about the death without Hades. You never read about Hades without death. And they're two really separate things, in a way. Hades is a location, a place, where the dead that become dead because of death are housed, at least until the resurrection of the dead take place. But what he's telling us here, what he saw, was that death and Hades gave up its dead. Which reminds me, you know, in the book of Corinthians, Paul says that the last enemy that is vanquished is death. The last enemy that Messiah vanquishes is not the evil one. It is death. And death, along with Hades, gives up its dead. And then ultimately, death and Hades, verse 14, are thrown into the lake of fire. So all of this area, consignment, references to the lost are brought to a conclusion, brought to an end. And uh, then it goes on to say, this is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I don't want to leave on that final note, though there's no real reason why I couldn't. But look at verse 1 of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So the final stage of things is not the final judgment. The final stage of things is a new order of creation. And that's where the book of Revelation brings us to. And the final chapters deal with that new order of things, what many refer to as the eternal state, that new creation that God God would bring about. So what have we seen so far? So we, if, if we were to take a panoramic view of biblical history, which in another way is to say about history, we know that God brought into reality all that is as recorded in Genesis chapter 1, and that he made human beings in his image. And unfortunately, human beings brought sin into the world. Now, I was thinking about that phrase and the bringing of sin into the world. We may point the finger at the evil one, but the evil one is not the one who brought sin into the world. He certainly brought temptation to sin into the world. That much is true. He's a deceiver. He's one who, has, who lures another, oftentimes, in, into sin. But ultimately, it was Adam. In Adam, we have all sinned. And so sin has come into the world, and God did not have to do anything about that. As a just God, he could have just simply said, okay, judgment falls. But he doesn't do that. What he does is he desires to restore and to redeem and to correct 
the creation that has now fallen. Fallen in that it has become alienated from God's good graces because of sin that's been interjected into this world. And as a consequence, we've been alienated from him. So the scripture says that we have died. And that's what God had said to Adam. The day that you eat dying, you will surely die. He doesn't really say the day that you eat, you will die. The Hebrew is very clear. It says that the day that you will eat, it's a participle, dying. You'll engage, you'll experience the process that we call death. A dying process. And certainly, you will die. But death in scripture, scripture is not merely, it's not less than this, but it's not only this, the cessation of life. It is a separation from the life of God. So there's a sense in which, yes, death is the cessation of our physical life, for we are all dying. The moment we were born, we were dying. But there's a greater death that we experienced even the moment of conception. And that is an alienation from God. And as complicated and as sort of disturbing as this may sound, even infants are affected by sin, though having done nothing wrong. And as Paul says, the wages of sin is death. And that's why infants die. They die not because they've sinned, for they haven't. They've died because... They are sinners like everyone else, even without having sinned. So I remember years and years ago in one of my classes way back when in in Bible college, you know, someone had made the phrase, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. And we're sinners because of the fall of Adam. And because of the fall of Adam, the consequences of sin are impacted. And it's not just infants. I say infants because we can identify with that. But all of creation groans for redemption. They didn't do anything wrong. What did the seed do that is groaning for, crea- for redemption? As Paul says in Romans 8, what did the sun do? They didn't do anything. It was affected because of what Adam did and all of his posterity as well, you and I included. We just happen to be adults now, but we one day were infants too. And we were dead in trespasses and sin. And so because of the condition in which we found ourselves in, we didn't just find ourselves in, but were perpetrated by virtue of the choice that Adam and Eve had made. It plunged all of his posterity into a state of alienation from God. That is what death is in the Bible. It's not only the cessation of physical life, it's the absence of the life of God. And the Lord chose to do something about that, to make the life of God accessible to us. So what does he do? His son comes into the world. As the prophets have said, and we can go into a great deal of detail regarding that, but the Messiah comes into the world, the anointed one, the anointed one to carry our sin, to bear our suffering, as Isaiah 53 says. And as a consequence of one who is wholly righteous, That's why he's referred to as the Holy One of Israel, the one who came to fulfill the law, not destroy it, and thereby being that Holy One, he could now bear our sin. And in bearing our sin, that means he must also suffer the consequence of our sin. And that's a mysterious thing in and of itself because he does that at the time of his death. 
So in some kind of finite moment of time while he is on the cross, he's suffering an eternal weight of suffering. So that we might receive, as Paul says in the book of Corinthians, an eternal weight of glory. And that's the exchange, for whatever reason, his grace, his love. That's why I read Psalm 118. His grace, his love, he makes an exchange with us. He makes it a trade with us. He trades our sin and our suffering for his life and his righteousness. That's why Paul says he has become our righteousness. He has become our holiness. He has become our redemption. It's all because of him. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's why we come every morning. That's why we live the life that we live, because of him, who he is, and what he has done. And because now the life of Messiah has been conveyed to us. That's what it means when the scripture speaks about the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is the spirit of Messiah, and the spirit of Messiah gives life. That's why it quickens our spirits that are dead in trespasses and sins and makes it alive unto God. And for the first time, we are responsive to the Lord. For the first time, we can actually hear the voice of God. We always could read the scripture, but they were words. Now they are transformed from words to God's voice to us. All because of what he has done for us. And then we're told that he promises, promises to one day come again. That's what the book of Revelation is about. That's why I've said all of this so we can get to where we are. I mean, we could be here a couple more hours. just. And we turn the fans on, we turn the fans on. But what the book of Revelation is telling us, it's the revelation of Messiah when he comes in all of his glory. That's why in chapter 1, that's what John sees. He sees them as the glorified Son of Man. In fact, later in chapter 4 and chapter 5, remember, he sees one seated on a throne that has a scroll with seven seals. No one is worthy to open the seals. And he starts to cry. And one of the elders sitting on one of the 24 thrones comes to John and says, Don't cry. Why ought he not to cry? Because the lion of the tribe of Judah... And when John turns around, what does it say, Revelation say? He sees a lamb as if slain from the foundation of the world. That's because Messiah came as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world to provide us with redemption. But he's going to come again as the, as the Lion of Judah to reign over the nations of the earth. To reign over Israel, but also it says to reign with a rod of iron over the nations of the earth. So why would he come so as to reign over the nations with a rod of iron? Now we're back to chapter 20. So if you look with me again, Revelation 20, we're told that for a thousand years he reigns over the earth. Six times it says that in Revelation chapter 20. And it must mean a thousand years and not be symbolic because look at verse 6. In verse 6, John now hears a blessing that is pronounced. And the blessing is, this is not what he sees, it's now a blessing. And the blessing is, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, that's the resurrection to life, over which the second death, that is the judgment that will follow, has no power, but look at this, they will be priests of God and of Messiah, they will reign with him for a thousand years. That's a blessing statement. 
Why does he say in the blessing, and you will reign with him for a thousand years? Because that's the blessing they will receive, the opportunity to reign with him. And back in Revelation chapter 5, the song that they sing, the song of the Lamb, the song of Moses, it says that they sing the song that they reign with the Lord on the earth. So these are important ideas. But after the 1,000-year reign, and during that reign, of course, in verse 1 of chapter 20, it says that the evil one is not only thrown into the abyss, this bottomless pit, it says that a door is closed over the pit, it says that he is chained with a great chain, and then it says that the door is locked. And so during this 1,000 years, the impact, the effect The power of the evil one will be greatly diminished so that it will no longer be effective on the earth during that kingdom. There'll still be sin, but there won't be the evil one and his cohorts to inflame sin and to tempt to sin. But sin will still exist. We can't go into all of that, but nevertheless, in Revelation 20, after the thousand years, and by the way, I think I mentioned I remember talking with a fellow or friend who was arguing the case for those that don't believe in a literal 1,000-year reign. And I said, if the Lord isn't going to literally reign for 1,000 years, and if the reign of the Lord is in our hearts currently, well, then you also have to have the evil one shut up in the abyss, chained up, locked down, and closed in during this time as well. And the scripture makes very clear, be on the alert, Peter says. For your adversary, the devil, roams about like a roaring lion, seeking whomsoever he may devour. Paul says that he's in the process of deceiving individuals. He blinds their hearts so they can't see. So I say, well, how is it possible if he is chained up, locked up, closed down, put in, restrained? How is it he can do all this stuff? And the fellow said to me, it was a very long chain. It was a very long chain. I said, you know, come on, let's just be honest about this. That was a good argument, you know. But the point is, I just can't see any other way around it. Because then if you look at verse 7, he's released. We don't know for how long, but for a time. And so it does raise the question, why would the Lord release him? I think, I don't know for sure, but I think he is released so as to demonstrate Not his power, but humanity's susceptibility to sin and the effects of sin on our lives. That it impacts us in such a way, even sometimes so subtly, as you see it in Genesis chapter 3, to listen to the voices that are contrary to God rather than to the voice of God. And so what happens in Revelation chapter 20 He's released for a time, and he leads a rebellion that's extensive because it says all the nations of the world. So I think it's meant as an example, as a challenge, not only to us who are reading this, to always be on our guard, even now, because he's not even chained up, but even now, despite the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives, despite the revelation of his word, there is an enemy afoot that we ought not ignore. And though we can't see him, nevertheless, he he is about. As Job, remember in the book of Job, when he appears before the evil one, and the Lord says, where have you been? And he says, I've been to and fro, 
over the earth. And so I remember someone saying, you know, while he can't be everywhere at once, because he, when he's two, he's not fro, and when he's fro, he's not two. But he gets to and fro one way or another. And he is about. And so in Revelation 20, 20, his release at the end of the Messianic reign, I think is an indication that sin is powerful. Even after the reign of Messiah for a thousand years, how much more powerful is it today with the evil one afoot in our own day and age? And that leads to the final finale of the great white throne judgment, before which we will one day all appear. Certainly, Scripture seems to indicate that there is a variety of judgments because there are a variety of conditions and sins that people have engaged in or been impacted by. Everyone is not judged the same way. Scripture makes that absolutely, uh, absolutely clear. In fact, Messiah himself tells us this is, this is the case. I, let me show you. If you look at Matthew chapter 11, just very quickly, we're going to bring this down because it's just getting hotter and hotter, isn't it? It's because I'm talking more and more. But in Revelation chapter 11, I'll just give you this, but just for your own uh, reference, uh, Matthew chapter 11. But if you look at Luke chapter 12, and I'm going to say John chapter 19, these are all passages where you can see distinctions in judgment. Let me just show you this one. Look what he says in verse 20 of Matthew 11. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. You know, that, that's very ominous. He did all of these miracles there. He begins to denounce them because they didn't repent of their sin despite all of the miracles that were done. So then he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. They're all around the Sea of Galilee. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. But I tell you, here it is, it will be more bearable... On the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon, then for you. So you see, not everybody gets judged the same way. In fact, Messiah just said, it will be more bearable for those of a different city than for you, because if they had seen the same miracles you had seen, they would have repented. So one is, receives a more bearable judgment than the other, it would appear. If you go further, he says, and you, Capernaum, verse 23, Will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So that seems to say to me that when we stand before God, everyone does not receive the same kind of judgment. They'll be different. Some will be less tolerable. Some will be more tolerable. And like I said, look at Luke chapter 12. You'll see a similar statement he makes. And you'll also see, see it in John chapter 19. These are two, three, two other passages. And it must be that way because even in the Mosaic law, not all sin is punished the same way. Well, why? Because the, um, the sin is more heinous in some instances than in others. But that's all to be left into God's hands. But it seems to me that Having, having, seeing that John has just seen the end of a thousand years with Satan loosed, released, and the judgment uh, and the rebellion against God increased, and then you've got this white throne judgment. I think there's a real message for us as well. 
And that is, right now, this is the age of grace. Right now, this is what Yeshua said when he stood up in the synagogue and said he came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, not the day of vengeance, which is also in Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. But he says he came not to proclaim the day of vengeance. That will come at the end of the thousand years. What he is coming now, what he has come now for, is to proclaim the acceptable year, this year of grace where there's opportunity to know him now. And not to be deluded, is that the right word? By the evil one who would seek to lead us astray and would desire that we not find him. So there will come a day of reckoning, for sure. And that day of reckoning, we leave in God's hands. For he's the one that alone can judge. Doesn't Yeshua say, judge not lest ye be judged? In Matthew 7 or so. For with the same judgment that you judge, will be meted out to you. So we're not here to judge. We're here to proclaim the gospel. And we're here to issue a warning that there is a day of judgment coming. And the remedy is Messiah. And in knowing him, when the books are open, and the other book, whichever book that is, there will also be the book of life. And you want to find your name in it. And as Rosh Hashanah comes close, you know, that's when we say, Lashana Tova Tekatevu, may your name be inscribed in the book of life. But we don't have to wait for Rosh Hashanah. Even now, we want to say, may your name be inscribed in the book of life. That's really ultimately the only book that matters. And it's the only ledger that is of only any real significance and consequence. For it will determine our ultimate and eternal destiny. So let's pray. And while I pray, the musicians can come up. Father, we thank you for this day. We are grateful for your blessings. And we are thankful for your grace. And so, Lord, I pray that for everyone that is here this morning and those that are watching online, that, Lord, we would heed your voice. And we would respond favorably to it. You are the one who calls by your spirit. And he echoes your words that says, Come unto me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden. I will give you Shabbat. I will give you rest. May we find the rest that is of an eternal nature that only Yeshua the Messiah can provide. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. The ushers are going to come and receive the offering. If you've come this morning to worship the Lord in your giving, uh, this is the opportunity to do that. Those of you online, if uh, you feel so led to help support Beth Ariel, you can do that by texting your gift to 925-718-0020. And, uh, or you can go online and go to BethAriel.org and click on the donate page and you can donate. But whether you give or not, uh, do be in prayer for our work and for our ministry as we reach out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in the greater, greater LA area. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers 
And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.